Welcome to the 10th episode of Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. Every fortnight we enter Room 106, the subterranean chamber into which all new planning information is fed and extract the key things you need to know. The podcast is called Room 106 after Room 101, the place in George Orwell's novel 1984 that contains a prisoner's deepest fears. We're suggesting that, for ourselves and for some of our audience, there can be a sense of foreboding about digesting the latest developments in the sector. It's called Room 106 instead of Room 101 in honour of the tortuous Section 106 negotiations that can take place when councils are trying to agree how much developers should pay for infrastructure. So, coming up, the key news stories of the past fortnight or so and why they might be important for you. We'll look at why decision-making on housing applications in a large part of the Chilterns, including an entire local authority area, has been frozen. Meanwhile, the measures to prevent water pollution that have been widely reported to have blocked development of 30,000 homes are being extended to 42 more councils. We'll explore the implications. And we'll report on the planned acquisition of one of England's biggest planning consultants. I'll also be highlighting one of the quirkiest stories from the past two weeks. Finally, in the deep dive section, I'll talk to planning reporter Samantha Eckford about her new report into permitted development. Which rights are being used the most, where the application hotspots are, and the authorities in which it's easiest and hardest to win approval. By the end of the show, you should know enough to emerge unruffled from your next meeting. So, time to bite the bullet. Ready to go in? Fair enough. Well, here we are again in Room 106, the repository in which all new planning information collects. It's fuller than ever. Yep, the news just keeps coming in. So, John, what stood out for you in the past couple of weeks? Well, my first story is the news that a moratorium on determining planning applications for new housing has been announced across an entire council area and parts of three others following advice from the government's conservation agency, Natural England, that increased footfall is threatening to damage a protected forest site. So the site in question is the Chilterns Beechwoods Special Area of Conservation, which is made up of ancient beech forest in Decorum Borough in Hertfordshire. And um, Special Areas of Conservation, or SACs, are protected under the Habitat Regulations, which sets a, a high legal conservation standard that planning authorities have to stick to. And on Monday last week, Natural England wrote to five local planning authorities around the SAC, raising concerns that emerging evidence was indicating that the protected site was experiencing significant recreational pressure. And these authorities are Buckinghamshire Council, which is a new unitary authority, Central Bedfordshire Council, Decorum Borough Council, St Albans District Council and Hertfordshire County Council. In its letter, Natural England said that planning applications for new housing provision in the areas around the SAC could present a serious potential conflict. It said that unless an applicant could prove how it will avoid adverse impacts on the SAC, it advised that the five councils freeze all decisions on such planning applications within what it called a zone of influence, which extends for 12.6 kilometres around the edge of the SAC site until a strategic cross-council solution is developed. Okay, basically... They're worried they've got this valuable site. They're worried that more house building around that 
valuable site is going to lead to more people walking their dogs, taking their kids for walks, et cetera, et cetera, on that site. And that's going to cause ecological damage. Yeah. And they need to find some kind of solution to this. And we don't know how long that'll take. So am I right in understanding that there's there are sort of two areas affected by this? There's, a, there's an inner area and a wider area. C- can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, you've got the wider area, which is a 12.6 kilometre radius around the edges of the SAC. And it's that area that Natural England has said that council should postpone decisions on housing applica- new housing applications until a mitigation strategy is in place. But they've also highlighted a particular site within the SAC, which is the Ashridge Commons and Woods Site of Special Scientific Interest. And according to a report for Natural England, it said that this area experiences the greatest recreational pressure. And according to the council most affected, Decorum Council, it said that any proposals for new homes that are within 500 metres of this site of special scientific interest are likely to be refused. And then it said it wouldn't be issuing decisions on similar applications elsewhere in the borough until this mitigation strategy is um, secured. Okay, so within that inner area, they're basically saying any applications would be refused at the moment. In the wider area, they're saying don't make a decision at this point until we've worked out this mitigation strategy. Yes. And what what steps are they taking to develop these mitigation measures? So Natural England hasn't said what the measures will be yet, but it says that the council's concerned are working with Natural England and the National Trust, which is a landowner in the area, on preparing these measures. And Natural England says it's open to ideas as to what these might be, but its its suggestions include suitable alternative natural green space, which is where um, a developer will offset ecological impacts by providing a new ecologically rich area of green space. Another idea is creating what it calls a new gateway to the um, special area of conservation. Okay, so it's it's, at least some of this is about creating other places, other nice places for people to walk their dogs, I guess. Yeah, to keep them away from the um, the SAC. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I suspect I'm in danger of oversimplifying it somewhat there. But um, So for the moment, how are councils going to handle applications? So Decorum Council has said that it will continue to receive and process all applications in the normal way, but it's going to postpone decisions until the, this mitigation strategy is in place. It said it will lead to some delays and inconvenience, but as promised that once the mitigation strategy is in place, it will issue decisions on all the affected planning applications. Obviously, the big question for many developers will be time and how long it will take to get this strategy in place. Yeah, absolutely. Are you aware of any other previous examples of this kind of moratorium? I'm not aware of any where it specifically talks about recreational pressures, but there have been other protected forest areas in Epping Forest and Ashdown Forest where there's been concerns about air quality and the councils there had been blocking housing applications due to concerns about the impact on air quality on protected forest sites. So concerns about water pollution and measures being taken to prevent water pollution have previously been an issue which has blocked development and significant amounts of development. And I understand that that issue has reared its head again in the last couple of weeks. Yes. Last week, a further 42 English local authorities were told that they are affected by a nutrient neutrality advice from Natural England, which has brought house building to a standstill in 
parts of the country are already affected by it, which means that the total number of councils that are now subject to this guidance is 74. So it's more than doubled. So this advice from Natural England, um, so protected sites around waterways that it thinks are in an unfavourable condition because of excessive nutrients, which is things like nitrates and phosphates. And the advice says that projects and plans that are in those areas or affect those areas should only go ahead if they don't cause additional pollution to those sites. So this advice had previously been issued to 32 local planning authorities in England, which included those in the Solent region, as well as Hertfordshire, Kent, Somerset and Cornwall. And we've we've covered that quite a lot in our uh, news coverage. But then last week, Natural England said it's identified a further 20 protected sites in other parts of the country that are adversely affected by this kind of pollution. And those 20 sites affect a total of 42 local planning authorities. So the, the sort of things that can make these nutrient levels increase you know, is frankly sewage, discharge from, from, from sewage, from new developments, it's um, use of agricultural fertilisers, et cetera, et cetera. But that is why Natural England is concerned about new development and wants to make sure that those kind of um, outcomes are mitigated against. So we, we've seen it very, you know, the Solent is probably the best known area where there's been a lot of publicity about this locking house building. So you say that there are many more parts of the country that are now going to be affected. Any places in particular that have stood out for you? Well, it's all over the country, the new areas, but they include some regions that haven't previously been affected, like the northeast. So Northumberland County Council, you've got East Riding of Yorkshire, you've got the Peak District, so councils there in Derbyshire and Cumbria as well. Yeah, so it's really, it's, it's just spread the net a lot more widely. Okay, and what's the likely impact on development in these areas? Well, we know from the areas that have already been affected that it's caused a hold-up in determining planning applications for new housing, and that has affected housing delivery. So obviously that's a problem for both developers and councils who have to hit housing targets. There seems to be more and more instances where the environmental impact of development is leading to the need to create special sites to mitigate whether they're special areas of sangs, suitable um, alternative natural green space, or whether it's um, offset sites creating to make sure that development leads to biodiversity net gain, or whether in, in the case of this stuff, it's the creation of sites that balance that impact on nutrient levels. It just seems that development more and more is being required to or you know, is likely to be required to create these special sites to sort of offset the various different environmental impacts of development. So uh, I wonder if we're going to see a lot more of the sort of projects we saw in around the Solent to effectively offset any nutrient increases that, that are caused by development. Yes, that's quite possible. Okay, and then a really big bit of news in the consultancy world. Yes, so my third story is about the news that Stantec, which is an American uh, multidisciplinary consultancy, uh, announcing that it will buy Barton Wilmore, which is one of the UK's largest planning consultancies. So Stantec has said that it expects to buy Barton Wilmore by early April 2022. We don't know the financial terms of the um, transaction yet. We do know that Barton Wilmore is going to change its name, so it's going to be, presumably, they'll be going under the Stantec name. And Barton Wilmore is a very well-established planning consultancy, so that's a very, it's a very well-known brand in the sector. According to our most recent annual planning consultancy survey, Barton Wilmore was ranked the third biggest UK consultancy in terms of the number of chartered town planners it employs. But Stantec is also, is, is another 
big planning consultancy now. So um, they bought Peter Brett Associates a few years ago, which had been one of the top 20 firms in terms of number of professional planners it had. So it, it's quite a big player already. So the fact that it's bought Barton Wilmore now will make it, it'll be interesting to see the results in next year's consultancy survey because you'd expect it to be vying for um, one of the top spots given how many um, how big its planning team will now be. But we don't know yet how the acquisition will affect staff numbers. Why does Stantec say they want Barton Wilmore? So we don't have lots of details on that yet, but they did say when they announced the acquisition that they're looking to strengthen their project delivery expertise across several sectors. And they did highlight Barton Wilmore's master planning and urban design capabilities as something they felt could enhance their offer. It rings a bell that this is one of quite a number of acquisitions of UK planning consultants by American multidisciplinary firms. Is that is that right? Or, or North American multidisciplinary firms anyway? Yes, we had a space of those kind of takeovers a few years ago in 2019. So we had WYG was bought by uh, TetraTech and it now goes under the TetraTech name. We had uh, Indigo Planning being taken over by WSP, which is Canadian. And then, of course, GVA, which was a very big property firm with a big planning team, was taken over by Avison Young. And it now goes under the Avison Young name. And uh, we've previously mentioned that Peter Brett Associates was bought by Stantec in um, August 2018. OK, well, many thanks for that, John. Of course, more details of all these stories can be found on planningresource.co.uk. But I'm going to have to leave you in this mound of uh, planning information because now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. Right, well, I'm going to make my way across room 106 now to find the huge dark caverns where the data from the Department of Levelling Up Housing and Communities is kept. And I think I should be able to find there our reporter, Samantha Eckford, who's been having a look at some of their data about permitted development. Ah, Sam, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Very good, thanks. Now, I'm right in saying, aren't I, that you've been having a really close look at the uh, data that the government holds on how much use is being made of permitted development? Yeah, exactly that. So we had a look at for each type of permitted development, the application numbers and the approval rates and kind of any national and regional trends in those to just to try and unpack how these rights are being used. Okay. So just to start with, which of the new PD rights that were introduced in, in 2014, which are being used the most on the basis of last year's figures? So the most popular of the permitted development rights was large householder extensions last year. So over the 12 months to September 2021, nearly 25,000 applications were submitted for this right. Office to residential was the next most popular category. More than 2,200 applications were submitted for this right, which was closely followed by agricultural to residential conversions with more than 2,000 applications. Okay. What about the longer term trends uh, for each of those rights? Yeah, so the popularity of large householder extensions is seen in the long term too. So between April 2016 and September last year, it accounted for the vast majority of prior approval permitted development applications. While numbers have fluctuated, there was a significant increase in 2020, perhaps reflecting the growing demand for home renovation. 
driven by the pandemic, as people began to spend more time in their homes and also may have wanted to make room for more flexible workspace. Okay, so so over the long term, that's been by far the most widely used and it's the fastest growing right. What about the other rights? So applications for office to residential conversions, which is the type that's perhaps most familiar to the majority of planning consultants, applications for this right initially fell after the right was introduced. However, similarly, there was a sharp increase in the number of applications submitted in early 2020. Of course, the pandemic has led to a reduction in office working. This means that more sites are readily available for development. But also, new regulations were introduced last year, restricting office to residential conversions. This may have also contributed to the more recent rise in applications, as developers may have sought to submit applications earlier than planned to avoid having to apply the new guidelines. Okay, so they felt that they needed to get their applications in quickly, otherwise they'd have a a tougher set of rules to comply with. Exactly that, yeah. And with retail and Sue Generous to residential, there's a similar picture where the number of applications rose throughout the pandemic as well. Obviously, as with office space, there's been an increase in retail vacancy, which means that there's many more sites readily available for development. So the pandemic might have been quite a significant factor in um, accelerating use of permitted development. Yes. Okay, so that tells us a lot about the extent to which the different rights are being used. What about approval rates, which seem to be the easiest of these rights to win approval for? Yeah, so we looked alongside application numbers, we also looked at the proportion of applications requiring approval that were granted by local authorities for each type of right. Our analysis showed that office to residential conversions were the most likely to be approved, while applications for large householder extensions were the least likely to be given the go-ahead. Less than 50% of large householder extension applications were given permission, compared to over 60% of office to residential applications. And this is, this is over the past year, is that right? It is, yes. So that's over the 12 months to September 2021. Uh, okay. And what do you think are the reasons behind that, that sort of difference in, in, in approval rates? So experts indicated that it's most likely because homeowners tend to act for themselves when they submit an application for a household extension. While most applications for office to residential conversions are nearly always submitted by a planning specialist who's going to know more about the regulation and the specific technicalities that they've got to meet. Okay, so that that explains the sort of lower rate with the large householder extensions. The the consultants, some might cynically say, not surprisingly, suggesting that the reason is that people aren't making enough use of planning consultants to put in those householder extensions. Yes, you, you could look at it that way. Well, I mean, I, I'm sure there's something in it as well, because it does stand to reason, doesn't it, that, uh, that the householder extensions are smaller schemes, which probably are more likely to be put in by people who are acting for themselves rather than taking professional advice. So that explains a certain amount about the approval rates for large householder extensions and the office to resi PD applications. What about agricultural to resi? And what about retail to resi? So for both agricultural to resi and retail to resi, the approval rates fell somewhere between office to resi and large householder extensions. Both saw more than 50% of applications requiring approval be granted permission. And in terms of what we've been looking at here, of course, are all the rights that have been around for a while. They've been around since 2014, or or maybe the most used rights that have been around since 2014. What about um, some of the new ones that were introduced last year that allow building upwards? How much use has been made of those? It really varied. There were more than 300 applications submitted for the most popular of the new Building Upwards right, which was Building Upwards to create householder extensions. And that's over the first two quarters that these new rights are available. Experts noted that as with 
applications for large householder extensions, because there are so many sites that are available, it's not massively surprising that this was the right that saw the most uptake over the first six months. Building upwards to create dwelling houses on blocks of flats was the next most popular of the new rights, but some of the newly introduced rights saw very minimal uptake. What were some of the other rights that were introduced? So there's a few. Um, They include demolition of buildings and construction of dwelling houses, building upwards to create dwelling houses on detached dwelling houses, building upwards to create dwelling houses on dwelling houses in a terrace. It's a whole range of building upwards rights. Okay. And these all being, there's minimal use of these three that you just mentioned. Yeah, compared to building upwards to create householder extensions and building upwards to create dwelling houses and blocks of flats. They've hardly been used over the first six months since their introduction. Okay, so so some signs that some of these new rights are being used. Some of them hardly seem to be used at all, but I suppose they are very new and we may see a bit more use of them when the next quarterly figures come out, I guess. Yes, it's something that might change and they have only been around for six months. Okay, and what about the approval rates for the new rights that do seem to be being used? So approval rates have been fairly low for the new rights. Both of the two most popular of the new rights saw approval rates of less than 50%. Now, this isn't massively surprising when you consider that these building upwards rights are subject to a number of technicalities and conditions, which will be largely unfamiliar to both councils and applicants due to the fact that they were only introduced last year. As time goes on, this might change and approval rates may increase. So that tells us a lot about application rates and approval rates nationally. But which areas are hotspots for use of these rights? So it really varies across each of the different types of right. For large householder extensions, many of the authorities that receive the most applications are in London. A combination of unmet demand and higher than average household income means that people can afford home improvements. However, many of the authorities with the lowest approval rates for large householder extensions were also London-based. For Office to Resi applications, many of the authorities with the highest number of applications are found in the greater southeast, especially in and around the Thames Valley. A combination of this being around the commuter belt where property has a high value, and also the fact that many of the authorities are Greenbelt authorities means that application numbers here are so high. In Greenbelt authorities, councils are required to demonstrate an effective use of brownfield land before they can consider the development of the Greenbelt. So this may explain why application numbers are so high in these areas. For retail and sui generis to residential conversions, all of the authorities with a high number of applications are found in the south of England. Six of the top 10 are in London. This may be because there is a sweet spot of high housing demand and a good supply of retail properties. For the final of the main categories, agriculture to residential conversions, mostly the authorities with the highest number of applications are large rural authorities in the south of England. Many of these are in the southwest, where the pressures of the holiday let and second home market may be driving demand. That's interesting. So it's, it's, a, it's a kind of, for most of these rights, it's quite a sort of London-centric model. And most of the activity is, is in London, but the uh, agricultural to, to residential, maybe not surprisingly, is the exception to that. Yeah, exactly. It's all to do with the availability of sites. And for agricultural to residential, it's unlikely that there's going to be many agricultural sites in and around London that are going to be suitable for conversion. That seems a, a fair point. <laughs> so what about approval rates? Are there sort of regional disparities or or, or regional trends that are evident there? Again, um, the approval rates are really varied across different areas for each of the different rights. So, as I mentioned before, many of the authorities with the lowest approval rates for large householder extensions are in and around London. However, one thing we need to be careful of with approval rates is just considering the fact that not all authorities report their approval rates in the same way. 
Some report what others may consider as granted under the prior approval not required category, which means that we won't have included them in the approved category in calculating our approval rates. Okay, so there's a sense that there's a little, there's been a little bit of a health warning about some of these figures. Exactly, but the overall picture still is valid and, and still does show that there is significant regional variation that isn't site dependent with these permitted development right approval rates. Okay, so is, is there anything else to say about regional differences in approval rates for the different rights? Just to note that there was significant variation for many of these rights. So where some authorities had 100% approval rates, others had approval rates that were very close to 0% that can't be explained by site-specific variation. London authorities frequently featured in the bottom 10 for low approval rates. But aside from that, there was a very mixed picture for each of the different rights. Well, that's very interesting. I guess we'd have to do some further study into appeals against refusals to see whether the um, frequent refusals by London authorities are found to be justified by planning inspectors or whether they're also losing more appeals than other authorities. But that, that's a that's a research project for another day, I guess. Exactly. It would be interesting to see how appeals would compare with the data that we've collated, though. Yeah, there would be another few weeks in, in Room 106 to work all that out. Sam, Thank you very much for all of that. Is there anything else that's important to say about the data in this report? The only thing left to say would be that full lists of um, application numbers and approval rates can be found on planning resource and are available. Fantastic. Okay, well, thank you very much for that, Sam. Yes, people should go to planningresource.co.uk to get the uh, the full report on this. There's some very detailed uh, information. And as Sam says, you can find out the approval rates for each right for each authority in that report, as well as finding out how many applications uh, that there have been, plus some of uh, Sam's analysis. So uh, well worth looking at. Thank you very much, Sam. I will leave you to continue mining the data in the uh, in the room 106 caverns and uh, hope to see you soon. See you soon. Right, now to find John again so he can select his reader's choice, the story that's been widely read by our audience without necessarily being a portentous planning issue. Ah, there he is. Hello, Richard. Hi, John. So what's the reader's choice for this week? Well, my quirky story this week is about an incident of common assault reported to the police by a planning committee member against another one on a site visit. And the allegations were reported by a local news website on the White, which covers the Isle of Wight. And it says that one councillor drove towards another and caused them to jump out of the way during a site visit. So the councillor is still investigating the incident and there's not too much we can say, but it has been reported to the police. According to the news website, the, the allegations have been strongly rebutted by the alleged offender who has claimed they are part of a conspiracy against him. It's notable because we've covered quite a few stories in the past year about planning committee members behaving badly. So people, well, obviously the news about Handforth Parish Council and that meeting, which was a planning committee meeting, went viral and that was huge news uh, across the country. But we also had, towards the end of last year, a planning committee member at Malden District Council in Essex who was found guilty of breaching the council's code of conduct at planning committee meetings through disruptive behaviour and um, shouting at the chair of the committee. Okay, uh, and we should say in this instance, of course, that no charges have been have been brought by the police. And this is, um, although the council says it's looking into it, no names have been published. And um, this is something that's been reported in the local paper. 
But yet again, it is um, another example of somebody on a planning committee being alleged to have uh, behaved in an aggressive way. Yes, that's right. We've covered a lot of incidents similar to this in our news coverage in the past six months. And commentators that we've spoken to about it say that they think behaviour by planning committee members has definitely got worse in recent years. And they pinpoint the growth of independent political groups that tend to be anti-development, dissatisfaction with higher housing targets and the use of online meetings as key reasons. Okay, very interesting. Well, we'll see. I'm sure that story was another one that further developments will be forthcoming. Okay, well, thank you very much, John. I think our work is done. Let's get out of here before there are any more announcements or decisions. Great. That's another fortnight summarised. Yes, we'll be back in two weeks to give you another update on the key things happening in the sector. Our thanks to producer Daisy Chaku from Rethink Audio. In the meantime... Don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis, specialist bulletins, and our quarterly print magazine, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.